Um, so I did exactly what I still do today, which is bought organic baby spinach in a massive container and then threw it into my food processor and then, you know, pureed it and then put it right in with the semolina in, in my mixer. And um, it was divine to eat. It was so bright and so green. It was just what I wanted. Hey, aliens, and welcome to episode 181 of the Kamano Voice. Today, I speak with the founder of Wildly Beloved Foods. Please welcome Aurora Echo. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Kamano Voice podcast, where I interview local business owners, comedians, singers, and more. I dive into their backstory to find out how they got where they are, what are some of the tips for you to do the same, and find out where they're going. Tune in every week as I interview more of the people you see every day. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Kamano Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. Hope you guys are having a good week. Um, had some nice weather here in the Northwest, so that's always a nice change. And uh, yeah, I you know I just realized listening to my intro that you probably don't know what we're talking about um, in that in that first part. Um, but uh, I hope it still makes you hungry by listening to it. So, anyways, uh, that is because my guest today is Aurora Echo who is the founder and owner of Wildly Beloved Foods, which is a pasta company on Whidbey Island. Um, I know I've been having a few guests and stuff from like Whidbey or Mount Vernon um, or Oregon uh, lately on the podcast, and that's, and that's due to the fact that I was working with this contract position um, with an organization that was uh, working with local entrepreneurs, both in Island County and Skagit County. So I got to meet a lot of really neat business owners in that program. And, uh, and of course, being a podcaster, I was like, hey, can I have you on the podcast? And um, they obliged me there. So um, I'm hoping to still have quite a few more of them on the podcast. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having them on the show. Um, but what Wildly Beloved Foods is, is a pasta company over on Whidbey Island. Uh, she hand makes her pasta and um, it is very good. Uh, we've been able to get some. You can actually pick it up at the Christofferson Farm Stand if you are here on Camino Island, uh, which is right across the street from the plaza. So shout out to the Christofferson Farms for that. Um, and uh, yeah, so they they carry some of her pastas there and they do a bunch of different shapes. Uh, and we get into all of that in this podcast. Um, but what she was describing in that opening is how she makes her spinach pasta. Um which I'm sure everyone has seen spinach pasta, whether it's on the shelf or whatever. And in a lot of ways, I feel like a lot of people look at it like, okay, so it's a green pasta, basically. Like the, the spinach is more for the appeal of the color than it is for the flavor. And, um, but in her case, it actually adds to the flavor um, uh, for the pasta that she makes. And so, um, man, I went into this podcast. Uh, it was before lunchtime. And I, as we were talking, I was getting hungrier and hungrier. Uh, and then I'm just craving pasta now. So um, that's where I'm at. I hope you guys will be there by the end of the episode as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, without further ado, I'm just going to let you guys listen to this podcast. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Aurora Echo. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Kamena Voice. Today, I'm here with the founder of Wildly Beloved Foods. Welcome to the podcast, Aurora Echo. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Aurora. Where would I start? Um, well, the name says it all. It's complicated, filled with light um, and passion. I don't know. I'm, I'm an Angelino. I, so I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in Hawaii. Okay. Um, the island of Hawaii, actually in Hilo, which is the wet side. Um, and, and, um, yes, I, I grew up in Hollywood actually. So okay. and then the wet side of Los Angeles. Nice. Um, and had an adventuresome spirit. So I was the first of my sisters to, to wander off to other places to live, um, in a quest really for nature and seasons, which Los Angeles, um, we really only have one season there. <laughs> Yes. Um, I found myself living in Northern California and then uh, visited the Rockies of Utah and fell in love with the seasons and the fall and the mountains and um, then went from there to Colorado 
and um, from Colorado, lived in Oregon for a short time, and then found my way back to Colorado, and then to Whidbey Island, where I had family. So, Okay. Yes. Wow. So um, you, you said you were born in Hawaii. Did you guys live there at all? My parents did. They were hippie musician environmentalists. Okay. So um, they went to Hawaii and had a few children there. And um, my my father still has land there in an area known as Orchid Land, um, known for its very tall, you know, four or five foot wild orchids. Wow. Um, yes. So um, we go back periodically, and it being the wet side of the island is very lush. So yep. it rains a lot, but it is very beautiful. Nice. Very cool. And then growing up in uh, California then, like outside or inside in Hollywood and stuff, how was that growing up for you? Well, um, I, what I say about LA in general is that um, it has wonderful food and art and culture. And being a city, a metropolis, um, one is exposed to a lot of everyone. And um, I'm, I'm very street smart. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I didn't consider it a wholesome place to raise children. And I always knew I wanted to have children. Um, so, so yes, that is why I'm not child rearing in Los Angeles. Um, it has traffic, homeless people, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. I could say a lot more about it, but, uh, I did go to a private school in, in the center of Hollywood, a very old school called Hollywood Little Red Schoolhouse that actually was a little red schoolhouse. And I don't know when it was founded, but, um, it was right on Highland Avenue. So if anyone knows Highland, it's, it's a major street that you drive up to get to Hollywood Boulevard, you know, Sunset or, or Hollywood Boulevard. And I walk to school on Highland Avenue sometimes. Okay. So um, it's, it's really the most urban childhood one can have other than New York City. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yes. And I will say, I went to school, to elementary school with Meghan Markle. Who married okay. Her. So we had sleepovers. We were in the same class. She was very nice. <laughs> very cool. <laughs> and that's just a normal part of living in L.A. You go to school with, um, you know, your, their industry people. You're surrounded by them. And, and you learn very quickly after living there for a short time, I think, even for young aspiring actors. Um, it's not a very glamorous place to live. Mm-hmm. But the weather is fair. It's, it's sunny, and I spent a lot of my youth um, roller skating in Venice Beach. Nice. Um, and I had a five-foot sidewalk longboard, which <laughs> if you can imagine that, it was, yeah, very heavy and amazing. It was a cruiser board where my sister would sit on the front, and we would ride, you know, tandem. Nice. And um, it's this life that really doesn't exist. I, I'm 41, and I can actually say that... Um, you know, those were the good old days because you can't have that back. Uh, so I never thought I would be one of those people that looked back and said that, you know, remember when I roller skated to the beach every day and watched the sunset, but yes, it's filled with homeless people, unfortunately now. Yeah. It's the, it's the crisis of cities. Yeah, for sure. So then you were, um, you kind of moved all over the place. Um, what were you... Was there anything that you were like looking for as you moved to like Colorado or Northern California? Yes, nature that felt like home. This this perfect balance. But I I did. I had a quest for nature. So my my family um, has a vacation home in Big Sur that my grandparents bought. Uh, they bought land there in the '60s. And if you're familiar with Big Sur, it's the central coast of California. Very rocky and dramatic and beautiful. And I spent so much of my youth there, all of my holidays and summer vacations. And that was that was the real taste of nature I had. Living in Los Angeles, you have to drive to go hiking or go to the beach. You're usually sitting in a lot of traffic. And then you're around really expensive estates because those are the people that get to live nestled in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always felt like nature being really close to it and trees um, was a luxury. Even the good neighborhoods in most cities 
have trees, but if you go to what's considered the ghetto or, you know, the lower income areas, they don't have trees. Yeah. Not everyone realizes that. Just to have a tree-lined street is um, is a sign of some kind of, you know, middle class or upper middle class, some sign of affluence. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I wanted the trees. So I, I lived in Santa Cruz. That was the first place that I actually decided to move to. And that's just past Big Sur, um, still considered, I think, the, the Central Coast before formally Northern California. And, um, and I knew people in Utah. And so that's what brought me there. I visited and I had this why not philosophy that I still have today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, well, why not do something? Why not live in a different place? Um, I'm very open. And uh, so, yes, I, I always was on a quest for nature. And <clears throat> my first daughter, Fiona, was born in Utah. And then my second daughter was born in Colorado, where we moved for my um, ex-husband's work. And he had family on Whidbey Island, and we were surrounded by, we were in an urban wildland interface where there were, there weren't fires in our firewise community there, but we were surrounded just like everyone with seasonal wildfires and Mm -hmm. the smoke would come in. And um, I want to say in a way we were climate refugees. We were looking at climate maps and we were thinking of just being in a wetter part of the world, even if even if you couldn't be sure that it would stay that way because of climate change, since it's unpredictable. Um, And he had a sister here on uh, Whidbey Island who um, is still still on the island. Um, Her name is Marnie Jackson, and she's actually on the school board and is now the new executive director of uh, the Whidbey Environmental Action Network. Wow, uh, okay. And she was also the director of the Whidbey Institute. So she had all of these roots here. And we had visited once, and um, I kept saying, Whidbey Island, Whidbey Island, Whidbey Island. And one day it just penetrated, and he said, okay, Whidbey Island. And so we got <laughs> land here. And um, the moment I drove onto the island with my two girls, it felt like home. Mm. And no place has ever felt like that before. Um, so I just, I fell in love right away. And um And the island, you know, I think I'm open and then the island has this magic to it as well where, you know, it embraces people and um, it opened up to me. So, yes, the rest is, is history. Yeah. Very cool. It's, it's funny when you're saying all these different things about Whidbey, um, you know, for everyone knows that Whidbey and Kameno are these, the island county, but they're like not physically connected in any way, shape or form. And they're actually very difficult to get from one to the other. But um, all the things, the sentiments you're saying about Whitby are things I hear all the time about Kameno as well, that people, <laughs> they, they drive onto the island and then, you know, they're like, I ask them like, well, how did, why'd you move here? What, what drew you here? And they're like, well, I don't know. I just drove onto the island and immediately was like, this is where I need to be. <laughs> and so that, that's a really cool piece that they both seem to have with each other. It's amazing. And, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to someone yesterday about Big Sur and Whidbey, that they have this connection and they're both incredibly beautiful, special places with a lot of dramatic, um, you know, coastline and um, very interesting people and so many artists. I actually took my my partner and my children there last summer and I hadn't been for many years. We went to my my family's vacation home. And we had just come from a long day of travel, and the last place to eat is right before you start driving um, the ragged uh, curves into um, through the Carmel Highlands and then into Big Sur, and it's called the Crossroads. And so we had just stopped for dinner, and the table next to us overheard our conversation and, and the word Whitby. And um, one of the ladies, her cousin actually retired here, was a retired teacher, and okay. chose Whitby to retire and lived in five minutes from us in Freeland. So then the first, the first dinner reservation that I, I had, of course, have made in advance was a place um, called The Bakery, was, which is right in the only downtown that Big Sur has is really a post office and a deli and a little restaurant just along Highway 1 in the Redwoods. And um, so we went there for dinner and we walk in and they ask us where we're from. And then they say, oh, our staff member, Shannon, just graduated from the Organic Farm School. 
Wow. Um, which is right, you know, on Max Walton and Whidbey Island. And um, my pasta company just started using organic spinach from the organic farm school, which is lovely. So, um, so that was very funny, but that was not all. As it turns out, speaking with a neighbor that I hadn't spoken with for a long time said that their postmaster, who has been there for, you know, 40 some years, <laughs> is retiring on the south end of Whidbey Island. Wow. Of all places in the world. So Whidbey <laughs> and Big Sur have all of these connections. And um, yeah, and then they're like energy vortexes or something. There's something about this place. And I know yeah. the world is filled with those. <laughs> it's yeah. a, magical, a magical thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, it's, it is funny how these like different things, these different spots seem to have these weird, almost invisible pathways between them. Exactly. Yeah, we've had, uh, we moved from Tucson, Arizona uh, when I was five up to Camino Island. And um, the amount of people, whether it's across the board that we've met that w have lived in Arizona and moved to Washington or the reverse of that, it's so weird. There's this weird connection between Washington and Arizona that people just, you know, they skip Oregon, California, and they're just going straight to Arizona. So it's just funny how that all works. <laughs> so, yeah, very cool. So, um, so you've mentioned it a little bit and we mentioned it in the intro, but what got you interested in pasta production? Well, really it's a spinach pasta story. Um, about 13 years ago, almost 14, I wanted, well, I'll say I've, I've always loved food. I've always cooked, but I had this craving for beautiful spinach pasta and it didn't exist. I lived near, um, it was wild oats at the time and then was purchased by whole foods. So there were different health food stores and grocery stores and anything that you could find if you could find spinach pasta on the shelf, which was rare. Um, was this very dark green, didn't really taste like spinach stuff, and um, sometimes had artichoke flour in it, and it was usually a spinach powder or something like that. So I, I realized that if I were going to eat beautiful spinach pasta, I had to teach myself to make it. So I went to the local kitchen store, William Sonoma, and bought myself a KitchenAid stand mixer and the uh, stainless steel made in Italy KitchenAid attachments. And I, I looked at the recipes and, and began down this path. And it's funny because the recipes um, that are given in the manual and that you can find online typically say, um, buy frozen spinach and squeeze it out with a towel until all of the water is gone, which is sacrilege for anyone who loves food or nutrition. So <laughs> I could not make myself do that. Um, so I did exactly what I still do today, which is I bought organic baby spinach in a massive container and then threw it into my food processor and then, you know, pureed it and then put it right in with the semolina in, in my mixer. And um, it was divine to eat. It was so bright and so green. It was just what I wanted. And mm -hmm. um, being someone who loves food and um, loving to share food, which is an ancient thing, right? We love to share food with people and to eat together, yeah. better together. Um, I kept making it for friends and family. And this was, this was many years before I had children. And then something happened. When I had kids... They wanted me to make it all the time. And making pasta, for anyone who's made their own pasta before, which is wonderful, but a labor of love, um, it takes <laughs> a lot of time and effort. So, so that is where drying pasta began in my life. I was like, okay, I can't do this all the time or every day. Um, so I started to dry it on racks in my kitchen to just air dry it in the kitchen, the old Italian way, the old-fashioned way. And it was still beautiful to eat, even though it wasn't what you would call fresh, but it was yeah. the freshest dried pasta you could have. <laughs> and so, um, yes, I, I kept making it. I kept um, giving it away to people. And finally, I listened um, and, and began a business. People would tell me, you need to sell this. You need to start a business with this. I was encouraged to do the farmer's market. One of my friends encouraged me to sell it out of my car, which I was not going to do. Um, <laughs> be like the tamale guy. Just open up the back of your car. You could make so much money. Um, and so I, I decided to do it the formal way and become a WSDA food processing plant because that 
opened everything up for me. I could share it with the most people. I could um, sell to shops. I could sell on my website. And, um, and you know, the sky was the limit. And so I thought, why not? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very cool. So as you were kind of learning about um, pasta making and stuff like that, um, what were the things that you were learning along the way? Well, um, I... I experimented with different kinds of pasta flour. I had access to what they sold in the bulk bins um, at Whole Foods or whatever health food store I was near. Um, I tend to go toward organic. I I come from uh, an upbringing with... Um, the emphasized avoiding uh, chemicals and and being aware of what was in our food, what was in our environment. And um, I'm also from California, which is the birthplace of Environmental Working Group. <clears throat> and they created what a lot of people are familiar with, uh, which is called the Dirty Dozen. It's like a quick way to know um, of kind of things to avoid at the grocery store that would have a higher level of pesticides, or I think they had the clean 15 as well. Um, And uh, so that, that basis of um, really what is uh, chemical policy knowledge or toxics knowledge um, always interested me and then uh, informed my eating choices and, and the things that I did for um, my my pre-childbearing years and then breastfeeding years and all of that stuff. And so with a focus on that, um, I, I experimented with a lot of different flowers. I, I tried to do regional and local, but I found myself noticing that there was a difference between domestic flour and Italian flour. Mm-hmm. And so that led me to start using um, Molino Grassi organic semolina flour. I just I just found it it was different and it tasted better. I'm a foodie, so I was just going based on taste. Yeah. Um, but since then, since I started using Italian flour, I've had people come out of the woodwork telling me that they, it doesn't trigger their gluten sensitivity or intolerance. I know this isn't the case with everyone and that people are um, on a spectrum for intolerance or, you know, some people have celiac and I would never advise anyone to eat my pasta who has celiac. (laughs) But um, yes, they, they've told me things um, like they could go to Italy and they could eat the pasta or they could go to France and they could eat the bread. Um, And they, They've many have been willing to try my pasta, and it hasn't triggered either their inflammation or their digestive issues. Um, so I don't, I couldn't tell you what it is about that. I'm not a um, grain geneticist. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's the history or how tightly they regulate it. But they Italian flour is more regulated than flour in the U.S. Mm-hmm. They they look at specific gluten content and protein, so you don't just plant. Um, grains, a type of grain, and then harvest it, grind it up, and put it in something. It's yeah. actually tightly controlled and monitored there. Um, but but yes, that that is how I came to be using Italian organic semolina. Yeah, well, and and what you you mentioned, it's not the first time I've heard that. Um, right. I know a lot of people that I've talked to that, um, and it's, it's actually interesting because even going to non like European countries, there's places in, uh, like I've been to Guatemala and some Central American countries that when people have stopped there and gone there, um, I've actually seen it where they're able to eat their flour or their things that they have, um, and not get, you know, not have a reaction or like our kids have shown better, seem to be in better health, even though we're eating junk food while we're down there they don't have the same reactions of eating junk food up here. Yes, it's fascinating. Um, I hope someone with a lot of time and expertise can get to the bottom of that. Um, I've I've kind of tongue-in-cheek um, said that this is the birthplace of Monsanto and genetic modification, and I don't know if that has anything <laughs> to do with it. Um, but there is something to it because I want to say um, – gosh, I want to say like four out of every five people I talk to have a story like that or they know someone. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's definitely, there's enough there that, um, it's not just coincidence. Right. 
That's right. Yeah. And the other, the other piece that you mentioned there is, and a lot of these people that I'm talking to that, that mention this type of thing are people that are into shop local, you know, they, they get their produce and stuff. If it's organic, they get that. Um, but they get it locally. Um, and so they're eating good quality food, but there's still a difference somehow, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I hope, like like you said, I hope someone does a deeper dive into that. And I'm sure there are those studies out there, and some of them may or may not have been shut down at some point. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, there is a bread lab. Um, is that at the WSU or some extension? Or it's mm-hmm. in Bow. I'm, I'm sure your listeners know a lot more about it than I do. Um, many people have, have told me about the bread lab, and I've never gotten in touch with anyone there, but they do have a geneticist running it, and I I would be interested to talk with them, and when I have some free time. Yeah. <laughs> I, will. I will, yes. Oh, very cool. Um, so the, another question I had for you is, uh, where did the name come from? Well, the name is... Absolutely inspired. It, I was walking on a treadmill, unwinding um, on one of these winter days, and um, I was thinking about how people react to eating my pasta, Be- specifically about um, my neighbor and, and good friend's son. He was seven year old. He was seven years old at the time, and according to his mom, these were her, her exact words. Um, he doesn't eat anything green and he doesn't like most things. <laughs> very finicky eater, the definition of finicky eater. And they had come over for dinner enough times um, where I was serving spinach pasta, of course, that I had just made. And on, on one of these nights, he would see my girls, you know, gobbling it down, all of us eating it. And this particular day, I so tried to budget my day so that I could make a plain semolina version for him, like so that he could eat pasta, fresh pasta with us that wasn't green. And it was not going to happen. There was no way I was going to make two different kinds, batches of fresh (laughs) pasta. Um, And so uh, there we were all serving our pasta when he volunteered to try it. No one asked him to, no one offered him again. And so um, there it was on his plate and he took a bite and he said, this has spinach in it. It doesn't taste like spinach. It's so good. And that was it. That was his love affair with my spinach pasta. He he loves my pasta. It is the only green pasta he will eat. And um, his mom, her, her jaw must have been dropped. Her mouth was hanging open for like 30 seconds straight. She could not believe it. So um, that was... That was a pretty extreme example of how beloved, how wildly beloved my pasta was and is. But um, it, it isn't the only fervor that, that people express uh, when eating it. It, it really does, it does taste divine. And that word has been used by so many people, particularly <laughs> the spinach pasta. It's just, it is... It is so special, um, and it, it still it now exists. I was saying before I started the company, um, I said, "Well, it won't exist until I start a company, and then it's on the shelves." Well, now, now it actually does exist. So, um, but I don't know of anything else like it. And of course, I haven't tried all of the pastas out there in the world. And a lot of people make pasta. It's like so many people make pasta, and there are so many pasta companies, and and there's so much wonderful pasta. But um, I am making it this certain way. I have a foodie and, and former chef friend who is really surprised that I don't blanch my spinach first. I don't do anything to it. It's mm. really just blended up and then it goes directly in. And yeah, there's this brightness about it that yeah. that is just, um, yes, bright is, is really the best word for it. I, I can't, can't think of how else to describe it. And you don't need to do a lot to it. You almost don't want to, you don't want to cover it with a bunch of sauce. You just want to taste it. And that's generally people's favorite way to eat it. People have told me all they did was put their favorite olive oil and a little bit of salt, or, you know, people do like brown butter and black garlic and then, you know, misithra or pecorino on top. And then that's it. So just really simple, which, um, if, if, I've never been to Italy, but if I hear people's stories about going to Italy, 
Um, that's they really don't drown the pasta in sauces. They dress it so simply because it's about tasting the pasta. Yeah. So, so yes, that is a long, a long way of telling you the story of Wildly Beloved. It just, I just thought, oh my goodness, Wildly Beloved. It is Wildly Beloved. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. It's also making me very hungry. Um, <laughs> well, I, one thing I'll mention too, when it comes to pasta, it is this great, um, dish, especially as we come into summer in the Northwest here, almost nobody has, you know, air conditioning or things like that. So when it's a hot day and you still have to make food for everybody, pasta is a great option because you can make it and then you can do like a pesto salad, pesto pasta, or you can do a simple, like you mentioned, and you're not heating up the whole house with the oven and the, you know, everything else. That's right. Yeah. So you could do breakfast pasta. I've had excellent breakfast pasta at a restaurant um, in LA called Hugo's. Um, and I haven't, I haven't made it here and there isn't a restaurant that has it here that I know of. Um, but yes, it's like the pasta for every, there's a pasta for every meal and people have pasta stories. I feel like pasta, even if they can't eat pasta anymore, they can talk about pasta and being sad about not being able to eat it. It's like, it's this universally beloved food. Yeah. What was the breakfast pasta? Oh my goodness. It had, well, it had bacon. Um, it had, I think at least one kind of cheese. It definitely had Parmesan and it had some, I want to say scallions, you know, green onions and things mm -hmm. like that. It was just this, and of course, scrambled eggs. So <laughs> doesn't that sound good? <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I'm getting hungrier the more we talk. Yeah. Um, so I did want to touch on that, uh, cause you mentioned it. What is it, um, for you, uh, that makes pasta specifically as a food group and stuff so special and, and what are all the kind of, um, I guess maybe how has it been so special in your life? Well, um, when I first made it because I wanted to eat it, Making pasta is very fun. It's it's one of those things. I, I do love to cook, but um, it's a dough. So uh, you can imagine what my children do whenever I have to take them to the pasta factory. They want to do everything. And <laughs> sometimes I will take a piece of the dough just to give them to play with and they'll do uh -huh. animal sculpture. So it is adult Play-Doh that you get to eat. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> um but yes, it's it's just fun. It's just plain fun to make. And even, no matter what you're using, if you're using a hand crank, it's it's fun to roll out the dough and um, you know be folding it and putting it through, which which I think is called laminating. Um, it's fun to put it through the cutter and to catch it. It's it's just it's fun with food and. I'm actually going to be teaching pasta making workshops at my new little pasta factory in Clinton. And um, one of the things that I'll be putting on the wall coming up here shortly, there's a wonderful printer in Langley called Feather and Fox, and he's making me these polyester wall murals that can go on with, you know, for my logo and things. But I want him to put up some text and quotations that say, I make my own pasta. Because I've said that, my friend Renee has said that, all of these people, people say it when they're walking by the farmer's market and I'm selling pasta and they say, I make my own pasta. And so <laughs> I think it's so cool. I want to teach people to make pasta and, and they'll get to look at that. I make my own pasta. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And it's so hard to do and takes so much time. I mean, it really isn't hard. It's easy, but it's time consuming. It's a labor of love. And that's yeah. um, and I am in no way worried that people will stop buying pasta if I do pasta making workshops. It's not <laughs> going to happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, that's so cool, though. That's great. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned as well is uh, you sun dry your pasta. Um, and, and it's a, it's slightly different method. And so it changes how the cooking method and all that stuff. Tell us a little bit about that and how you kind of started that. Yes. Well, I, I don't dry it in the sun, but I think a lot of Italians did, um, or they just, they just air dried it. So there's, you know, there's a very famous YouTube channel called like pasta grannies or pasta nonas. Um, and, uh, 
if you watch some of those and you learn about how they used to do it, you know, they're like, they're, they're basically putting pasta everywhere in their house. It's draped over the sofa. Um, it could be on coat hangers. I've heard a lot of stories about coat hangers being used. Um, you dry it every which way, but I, I think, um, being sun dried, uh, and, and dried out in the open is, is a very old thing. They needed to dry their pasta they were in no way making fresh pasta for every single meal because uh-huh. it takes too much time um, for too small a quantity. So yes, uh, drying pasta has been a thing for a long time. And um, it's how I did it in my kitchen. And I like a warm kitchen. So it was pro- a warm house. So it was probably around, you know, 70 degrees or so. And um, one of the, the facts that I learned about this my pasta cooks in half the time. So between, you know, four and six minutes, depending on shape. Um, if someone buys the fettuccine, it dry, it's really perfect in four minutes. Um, so it's on the low end. Um, the factories, when, when factories came into existence um, and started to develop the technology for producing pasta and for drying pasta, they started to use heat. And I imagine that's because they want to get it in and get it out. And they also want it to be very stable for shipping and for shelf life. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the heat builds a starch wall around the pasta. And so it takes your, you know, nine to 11 minutes to cook. And that is the difference. Air dried pasta reduces the cooking time pretty much in half. And in my opinion, the taste is better. It, It is just... It's different. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so you've, you've talked about it a little bit. What does it look like? What does the pasta making process look like? Well, um, in my home or in my factory? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think at this point you're getting into the point where you're getting into the factory. Um, yes. So go through there. Yes. Well, um, I... I bought, I did research and um, had to choose among a lot of machines made all over the world. Um, And I chose uh, a machine made by a family called Botene that is made in Italy. Um, I bought it from a commercial uh, equipment distributor actually in Illinois. So it goes from Italy to Illinois. And um, this particular commercial machine, um, when I received the quote, this is really interesting, I received the quote with freight to the zip code of the commercial kitchen I was in at the time, and the quote was $11,111, which I thought was really (laughs) funny. I thought, what are the chances that the exact amount would be that? And I didn't know the significance of numbers, although they seem to dance around in my life. Um, someone said, oh, those are angel numbers. It's a sign that you're exactly where you're supposed to be. It's like confirmation from the universe. And um, (laughs) I have found that to be true. And it's a beautiful machine. I love it so much. Um, Even though it's commercial, it has these wonderful bronze dyes, and it's really still um, an artisan machine. It can produce a lot of pasta, but it's not your what you, I envision is industrial equipment. It's still yeah. it's still small and beautiful. I have an Instagram account and I post a lot of extruding videos that are very hypnotic and mesmerizing, and uh, <laughs> those are all of of this machine making you know campanelle the bells or um, uh, pappardelle undulate the wavy uh, pappardelle. Um, so yes, it's it's so much fun. So this machine can hold 17.6 pounds of semolina at its max as a minimum of uh, 8.8 or, you know, somewhere around uh, half of that. And um, it's really, I have four different dough formulations because I... I'm obsessed with pasta. So I do plain semolina and water, which is naturally vegan. I do semolina, organic baby spinach and water, also vegan. And then when you add eggs, it gives this more rich, whole flavor, um, which, you know, is fine for some people. Some people avoid it because of the cholesterol or some people are allergic to eggs or they just don't want eggs in their pasta. But um, I like them all personally. People ask me, which one should I choose? And I tell them, you're asking the wrong woman because I love them all. I make them all. It's like choosing a favorite child. You know, you just don't do it. Um, (laughs) 
So, uh, so yes, depending on what dough formulation I'm using, um, whether it's semolina, spinach, and eggs, or, or then the, the last is semolina and eggs, uh, that's what's going in there. And it's this, this beautiful machine mixes it and kneads it and then extrudes it. Um, yeah. It just has a huge mixing paddle and an auger and a motor. It's, it's yeah. really quite simple. If, yeah. if you've ever watched, um, there's a, a domestic pasta company called Spolini that was a Brooklyn. They started out small in Brooklyn and then they got bigger and they are now in a massive warehouse that has equipment that is so big you need like scaffolding and ladders to get up to it. And um, while that machinery is still very cool and has really, really big, heavy bronze dyes, which are striking to look at, um, I feel like when you get to that level, for me, it's not romantic anymore. It loses this artisan romance. So um, I feel like I, I still have that here. And if I ever want to grow, I will make little franchises of wildly beloved foods in different places so that we could still um, do little factory tours. We could still um, have pasta making workshops and then have a little retail spot and just recreate that model for local communities so that there's this interactive pasta experience. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really cool. It's, it's interesting. Um, So our, my dad started a coffee roasting company. So, um, and it, it's, uh, it specializes in uh, subscription coffee, um, which at the time he started it in the late nineties subscriptions were like any sort of club was a bad thing. <laughs> right. Um, but as he grew it, that was one of the challenges he continually ran into is I still want it to be a micro roaster and have that quality and have those pieces. But you know, coffee roasting, it's like you can only produce as much as you can roast in a time. So it's, it's that piece and how do you keep that artisan feel um, even as you scale and you get bigger. Right. Um, and I feel like they've been able to ride that line really well. And they've actually, they constantly are bringing in, when they bring in new coffees or new shipments, they will take them, test them on micro roasters, make sure they get the, you know, the roast profile exactly how they want it. And then they start programming that into the, the bigger machines, but they keep that micro roastery feel. I love it. So it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. This is a question I've had. Um, cause I, I probably, I mean, I just, I'm not super knowledgeable in pasta, the different shapes of pasta. Obviously there's, it's like, like you said, there's sometimes you're using the same dough, but you're doing different shapes. Um, does that actually like change flavor profile? Um, what are the best uses for those different shapes as well? Well, I think you're, in terms of best uses, that's probably very um, subjective. And people will all have their opinions um, about what holds the best sauce, you know. So depending on whether you're doing a pesto or a carbonara or something like that. Um, In terms of number of of shapes that I produce, I only have, I say only, 19 (laughs) dyes. So (laughs) clearly I've given away that I want more. (laughs) I do. I want more. Um, I don't do there. There's one um, that is sometimes called Orzo, but uh, Botene who makes my machine calls it Riso Medio. Um, And uh, it's lovely and totally different and can be great in like a pasta salad, one of those cold dishes or something like that. Or, or you can serve it warm with a piece of beautiful grilled fish atop it, you know, instead mm-hmm. of a rice. Um, so, so I, I would say taste is different for size and texture is different, um, even in the same dough. And it's so versatile. Um, your long shapes, you know, how, how wide they are. I have, um, a, a thin spaghetti and someone saw it at the farmer's market and said, oh, it's like an angel hair. And I told them, actually, it's not. There are five dyes, um, four dyes before you get to this dye that you're seeing that are thinner. So I have number five and Uh there are four before it. And only the first two are called angel hair. Okay. (laughs) 
So they get really, really thin. Um, And I want them all. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought of doing like a little um, Kickstarter or even having someone suggested at the market that I should have a a jar and people could um, donate for, um, because each die is like $332 and they could donate to that and then maybe get a few bags or a bag of like the first um, pasta produced in that shape because there are hundreds of dies and shapes of pasta. It is vast. And then what um, Folini did, uh, that other pasta company, they worked with this very famous pasta podcaster. I don't know all the details because I'm too busy and I don't listen because I don't have time. Um, But uh, he invented uh, the sporkful. um, It's this shape called the the cascatelli. I guess maybe sporkful is a concept. Your your listeners are going to correct me. They're going to cringe hearing me talk about this because I'm no expert. But um, cascatelli, um, he, he connected with Sfolini and they they produce cascatelli and they patented the dye. Okay. So you can create your own dye. I could create my own dye. Someone <laughs> give me a dye idea or a shape of pasta idea. And then we can have one of these two factories in Italy that actually make all the dyes for most of the world um, produce it. Even a thickness. If I wanted super, and I think I might do this, because what I did on my KitchenAid um, stand mixer, the fettuccine let me go to a setting that was so, so thin when you put it in boiling water. It cooked in a minute, and it's really special. Um, But the fettuccine that comes with my extruder or standard extruders um, is a little thicker. And so I could get a custom die that is, you know, six millimeters instead of the 0.8 millimeters or whatever it is. Yeah, it was was 0.6 versus 0.8. So, um, yeah, uh, the the world of pasta is like limitless, and some of these shapes are so foreign and wild looking um, and fun. You know, yeah. all different. So it's like you can't compare them, and that's why you need them all eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've enjoyed. I've been able to try a few of your pastas, and um, yeah, I've I've loved the different shapes that you guys that you produce. Um, and yeah, that I feel like there are certain pasta shapes I'm starting to learn that I'm not huge fans of. Like even like the simple ones, like the uh, penne, p e n n e, that shape, the the penne. Yeah, I, yeah. And I don't have a penne die, but I yeah. want one. <laughs> <laughs> I I do do I I do rigatoni, um, but that's really my only tube shape right okay. now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> So just certain shapes that I'm like, I don't, they don't hold as well. And they don't, I don't know. I feel like when I eat them, like I'm, I'm, it's in the way of something else or like not getting as much as I want of the sauce or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, bronze dyes, and you may know this, um, when, when pasta is extruded through bronze dyes, the bronze dyes, uh, lend a rough texture to any shape that is being extruded. So even a flat shape like fettuccine or the thin spaghetti or the pappardelle, um, they all have a, a more rough texture that wraps oh. onto sauce. Oh. Yeah. So so they're, they're all better at doing that. And um, some machines have a water cooling feature like mine does. Some do not. And the water cooling feature uh, makes sure that the dough isn't becoming too heated. All of that mixing and friction yep. really does heat the dough. It's yeah. getting warm in there. Um, even by hand, if anyone is out there and experienced and and doing anything with dough, it's because you're really working, you know, there's a lot of energy going into that. And it's not just body heat. It's it's that mechanical energy. Yeah. So, um, the water cooling feature is important and I had to get a piece of what essentially is laboratory equipment for this. It's a water chiller recirculator made for laser engraving machines and other <laughs> lab And it is, its highest and best use is right here in my pasta factory. <laughs> <laughs> 
Very cool. Yeah. No, I my background's mechanical engineering. So oh, sweet. <laughs> well informed of, of friction and heat and stuff like that. Um, awesome. So another question I had is, um, so you, you've kind of talked us through this process of how you got to the point where you started the company. Um, what has kind of been your biggest challenge in starting the company and running the company? <laughs> Hiring employees, certainly. <laughs> um, not that I don't have people to hire. It's just that funny startup stage where you need cash flow to hire employees, but to get the cash flow, you need to fulfill orders. And to fulfill orders, you need employees. So it's <laughs> that, that little sticky point um, that, yes. Um, but I actually just uh, got my first employee two weeks ago. And um, she is someone who contacted me when she saw my article in the newspaper. She felt inspired by my pasta story and um, didn't know what was next for her. She was a retired uh, flight attendant. And um, she reached out periodically over the months when I was in different stages. I was about to transition into my new space. And then, you know, she reached out again and happened to see me at the farmer's market. And she is lovely and genuinely wants to be a part of this. And what more could an employer ask for, right? Wow. Yeah. Wonderful. And she's not the only one. I have people who would like to work for me all around. I just met someone the day before yesterday who is another semi-retired person who's done very well and has all of this background in marketing and HR and starting and running and selling a successful company and asked me if I needed a part-time employee. And I, and I said, well, I do. Are you, who are you talking about? And she said, me. <laughs> and um, she just reached out and followed up today. So it's, it's incredible um, that, that there are people who just want to be a part of it. And, yeah. and it is the startup stage. This is like the nittiest and grittiest. Um, <laughs> and for some, the most exciting. And they they look at this and they say, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> so it's their jam, you know. Yeah. And, and it's a lot of fun. It really is. It's so much fun. Yeah. Well, and there's just that benefit of being able to work in a small business uh, where you're working day in, day out with the owner. Um, and you're really seeing all of the pieces come together and you're, you're, I don't know, every little win is, is monumental and exciting. Yes. And every day there's something <laughs> or, or many somethings. It's, it's just, yeah, it's been wonderful. It's the hardest and most wonderful thing I've ever done. Um, second only to child rearing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they, they find new and creative ways to challenge you every they day. Do. Yes. <laughs> um, well, awesome. What is, uh, you've mentioned little pieces of it, but what is your favorite part about living and working on Whidbey Island? Well, again, it's like pasta shapes. Um, it's hard to choose. Um I am, I am not, although I, I really appreciate being so close to a city, I would say wholeheartedly, I am not a city person. I love living and driving in such a beautiful place. I love that my commute to work is just, it's just epic beauty. I, you know, we live in a place where people come to vacation. Yeah. So, so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> That's like at the top of my list. I'm surrounded by trees and, yeah. um, and clean air and clean water. It, it feels so luxurious. Not, not a day, not a moment in a day goes by that I don't feel so incredibly lucky to live in this place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And especially because you, in the beginning of the podcast, when you were mentioning, um, you know, growing up in California where it was only the very wealthy people that could sit, you know, could live in that or experience that on a regular basis. And here in, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, growing up, I had friends all over the financial spectrum, but all of them loved camping. All of them loved going on hikes and all of them were able to do that. That was their, that was their entertainment. They would go on hikes. They would go and explore. Um, and uh, that's really neat that we, no matter where you are in the Northwest here on the financial spectrum, you're able to enjoy that piece of it. 
Yes. I, I will say Colorado and um, Utah have a lot of that too. And um, it's when you get into really densely populated cities that it becomes, you, you, you know, the disparity is greater. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, all right. Lastly, where can our listeners uh, find your pasta, get your pasta and uh, support wildly beloved foods? Well, um, if you are on Camino Island, they can find it at Christofferson Farm Stand. Uh, if you are on Whitby Island, um, there are a number of shops like Greyhorse Mercantile in Langley, Bayview Garden in Langley, which is next to a wonderful cafe, Flower House. Um, so hard to keep track. Um, right. The Hierophant Meadery just started carrying it. They have delicious mead, and it's a beautiful property right on Double Bluff and uh, Highway 525. Um, Green Bank Pantry, Three Sisters, um, soon Seabiscuit. We are we are packing up and delivering an order to Seabiscuit Bakery today, which used to be uh, Muckleteo Coffee Roasters. And well, Muckleteo Coffee Roasters are still there, but it used to be Cafe in the Woods, mm-hmm. um, and uh, a growing number of stores. The I suppose if you'd like to go direct and have it shipped to you, you can always order from my website, which is. Okay. My- belovedfoods.com. And um, if you would like to buy fresh pasta, um, you can now buy fresh, fresh frozen, and shelf-stable dried uh, through the Whidbey Island Grown Food Hub. Um, I believe that's Whidbey Island Grown, is it .org? I think it might be. And um, let's see, where else? Um Well, soon it will be in Bocato's Italian Grocery in Hermosa Beach. So if anyone listening is a Californian, a Southern Californian, or visits there, um, Bocato's Italian Grocery. It's a 1970 Italian grocery store. Wow. They happened to have a connection and and brought samples to the owner, and he loved it. Awesome. Yes, he cleared shelf space for it, which is lovely. And then the People's Food Co-op, another 1970 store, it was the... um, People's Food Co-op in Portland is also going to start carrying it. So, um, awesome. and they reached out to me. So, um, a growing a growing number of places. And uh, if anyone listening is interested in employment with Wildly Beloved Foods, they can also email uh, info at Wildly Beloved Foods. Awesome. And yes, and um, I have an Instagram which is Wildly Beloved Foods with lots of entertaining pasta extruding videos. Um, and I'll be announcing pasta making workshops and I'll have a little retail shop here, um, as well. So people will be able to buy the full selection of pasta, which no store has the room for, um, unless they wanted to get rid of any other pasta brands, which I'm not proposing. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and then I'm also selling at the farmer's market, uh, all, uh, season long at Bayview Farmers Market in South Whidbey, as well as the South Whidbey Tilth Farmers Market, which is the Sunday market. So Saturdays and Sundays, and I sell fresh, fresh frozen and dried. And I actually make the fresh pasta before the market so that like a baker, I can say, this was just me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds like you're working seven days a week right now. <laughs> oh, yes, I am. I am. It's the labor of love. You know all about that, Brandon, I'm sure. Yes. Very cool. Well, we like to end every uh, podcast with some rapid-fire questions. So the first one is, what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three months? That's really tough because I've been spending all of my money on my business. Um You've got me there. Can it be a business expense? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which one do I name? Because I buy so many things for my business. Um, I'm like <laughs> looking around my office. Um, $100 or less. It could be a little over if you have something that you're like, oh, that was definitely it. Okay. Hmm. You might have it's, to come back to me on yeah, that. We can come back to that one. Yeah, I'm sorry. You really got me on that one. <laughs> All right. Um, who if is there the were most... more money than that, it'd be easy. Okay. So. 
<laughs> Maybe what was it most, uh, <laughs> what purchase have you enjoyed the most in the last three months that you've made? Um, what? I'm not sure if I understand the question. Sorry. Brandy. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, um, that I, that I made like, Oh, sorry. Uh, just take off the, the budget restriction. What was oh in the last three months? In the last three months? Oh, well, um, definitely my, my Botene Bigolaro, which is the oldest pasta extruder um, that was patented in Italy in 1875. And it's made by the family that makes my commercial extruder. So I actually have the oldest and the newest pasta extruder. <laughs> it's a very cool manual pasta extruder that is attached to a bench. So the bench is sitting on the ground and um, you make your dough on the bench. You have a bowl sitting on the floor beneath the extru extrusion chamber. So you make your pasta by hand, then you scoot it over brush it off, sit on the bench, and then lo load your hand-kneaded balls into this extrusion chamber, and then you start turning this very cool <laughs> crank, and it pushes the pasta out of the dye that is attached at the bottom. And the dye that is on there is a thick Sicilian-style spaghetti called Bigolaro, and that's its namesake, the Botene Bigolaro. And so, and that was $375. So that was easy. Now that uh. you change that limit. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm glad I did. And I actually bring that machine to the farmer's market. So okay. it fits on the table and I get to tell people and show them the very first pasta extruder patented in Italy in 1875, which is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Um, who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life? I have so many, but I have to choose one. You can name a few. Okay. Um, well, my my current partner, um, whose name is George Henney, and he's a, a lifetime would-be islander. Um, I think when you have when you have a supportive partner, um, you just have the strongest wind in your sails. There's there's really nothing that someone can't do with um, a supportive partner. So uh, yes, he would be right up there. Um, and then the other person would be an incredible, remarkable woman named Elise Lazar that I uh, forged a deep friendship um, and lived with in her home in Salt Lake City, Utah. And um, Yes, she's just a renowned community organizer and environmentalist and dynamic artist and also was um, some very powerful wind in my sails. Awesome. And I'll, I'll name one more woman. Um, she was a nurse practitioner, my healthcare provider in Santa Monica in Los Angeles, and was always just so lovely and and always loved my questions. I'm a really curious person. And she once told me, um, Aurora, you don't have to do anything for your life to be amazing. You just have to go and live life. And that really resonated with me because whenever I put myself out there in the world, I'm, I'm an open person. And whenever I am just doing my thing with whatever it is, there's magic all around me. And mm -hmm. it's like those, those invisible lines, you know, heart lines, whatever they are, um, things, things are just incredible, yeah. you know, with no small amount of hard work, of course. I, <laughs> I, I joke that I manifested this with a whole lot of hard work. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but it's, it's wonderful. Awesome. All right. This is a fill in the blank question. I know this is weird, but I've always wanted to blank. Does it have to be weird? See, I no. wouldn't start it by, okay. Um, well, 
These are really good questions, and I should have read them, but no, I, was you're good. Too, I was too busy making pasta, Brandon. So <laughs> normally to, to get me to answer questions, like the person who builds my website or does any of my you know pricing stuff, she actually stands in front of me while I'm making pasta because I can't <laughs> respond to anything. No emails, no texts. It's just like, okay, you know how to get me. You just stand right there while I'm doing it. Um, I would say something that uh, I've only done once before that I would really like to go um, deep dive, pun intended, is um, do more scuba diving. Mm-hmm. I love scuba dive and I only I had some very basic certification when I was 16 um, and just did a little smattering of it. But uh, scuba diving is incredible. It's a whole other realm of beauty. And yeah. I'd like to do a whole lot more of it. Nice. Yes. Uh, who is an interesting or fascinating person I should interview next? Oh. Hmm. Cynthia, her name is Cynthia Kersey. Um, C-Y-N-T-H-I-A-K-E-R-S-E-Y. And... Um, She's this dynamic, incredible woman who lives on the island part-time and uh, started uh, an organization. Um, I want to say it's primarily focused in Kenya, uh, okay. but it's, it, it's a, an organization that focuses on, on women. And um, her, her nonprofit is called Unstoppable, and she, she is a force of nature. Awesome. Yes. All right. And lastly... Um, what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Well, I could give I could give myself funny advice like have children younger so that you're not so tired all the time. <laughs> um or something more generalized, like buckle up, it's gonna be a wild ride. Um, but you know. I, I couldn't change a thing and I wouldn't want to because every little step I've taken and every single thing that has happened led me here. Yeah. Very <laughs> cool. Well, you've taken on, us on a wild ride of all the different things about pasta and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Aurora Echo for joining me on the podcast today and thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to commandocommons.com slash podcast or just check out the show notes in whatever podcast app you are listening on. Thank you so much for joining me, and I'll see you next time.